I'm back with the first episode of 2024, episode number 45 with James Owen, a triple seven pilot with Air New Zealand. As you will soon hear from James, I won't introduce him too much more, but it was really awesome to chat with him and all the different hats he wears, as well as his experiences in life, aviation and sport. We cover so many different topics in this episode, with the first half focusing mostly on flying and then getting into some really interesting topics around imposter syndrome, working to our individual strengths, and juggling health and training with more challenging work schedules. We really hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the Nourish Your Potential podcast. My name is Kushla Holdaway and I'm a registered and accredited sports dietitian based in beautiful New Zealand. I am so glad you have joined me on this podcast where we will discuss science, sports nutrition, running and physiology alongside interviews with athletes, experts and other health professionals. Whether you're listening to this podcast during your commute, your training session or whilst cooking up a storm in the kitchen, you can be reassured information is discussed in a thought-provoking, evidence-based and easy-to-understand manner so that you have more tools in your nutrition toolbox to be your best self. Well, my name's, my name's James Owen. I'm, I'm originally from Wellington. But I've moved around the place over over the 36 years I've been around, and I've settled in Christchurch, and I've been in Christchurch for about 10 years. I lived there with my with my wife and I in in Sockburn near the university, uh, and I guess first and foremost, I'm a I'm a I'm a husband, I'm a brother, I'm a son, and when I don't spend time uh, giving time to those things, I'm I'm an Air New Zealand pilot. Uh, I do endurance sports. I like doing a whole host of different things, and yeah, I like to like to live a full and an active life and sort of get pretty curious about all all manner of different different things. So I'm not sure if you can put me in a box, which is kind of the way I like it. Yeah, I've been yeah. keen to have you on the podcast for a while, actually. For for that reason, I feel like there's so many interesting things about you, but particularly own interest of mine I'm really interested in aviation and flying I think it's amazing and also I've known you for quite a few years from the endurance space as well actually through Team CP initially and when you were a coach there so yeah I've been really looking forward to catching up and just diving into a bit more about you and being a pilot and being an athlete and everything else. Yeah well it's 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 very easy to go down rabbit holes so feel free to kind of take this in in any direction that you like and Hopefully, we can find some some things that people might find interesting, whether it be about flying or, or coaching or study or just things that everyone picks up along the way. Because I'm sure you could have almost anybody on the podcast, and you could fill an hour talking with uh, people about interesting experiences that they've picked up in life along the way. So, yeah, let's do it. Cool. Should we should we start the podcast or the first half or so with pilot chat and getting to know about what it's like and how you got to be with Air New Zealand? Because I think that's, you know, it's one of the best airlines in the world. So I think it's pretty cool to be where you are. So yeah, tell yeah. us tell us a little bit more about your journey and and getting there and, and what it took. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I guess getting into flying was one of those childhood things really that that a lot of pilots would have experienced in some ways. Very few people sort of, in my experience, fall into flying just because it was something they thought they might have a go at. But I remember when I was about seven, my my grandparents lived near a an Air Force base in the UK, and I was over visiting them when I was about seven, and my grandpa and I stood and we were watching the GR7 Harrier, which is a type of military jet, practicing for an air show. And it was doing this bow maneuver where it sort of hovers and then it does like a bow at the end. And that signals the the end of the display. And I was standing watching with my grandpa as, as I was seven. And I just, I'm not quite sure what it was about that, but I sort of remember standing there thinking and looking at that saying, that's pretty cool. I, I want to do that. And my, um, my grandpa was, didn't have any, 
affiliation with flying or or even engineering or mechanics in any way. But he had a sort of a, a little bit of an interest in in, in in that kind of thing. So I remember talking with him and I said, Grandpa, could I do that? I remember him saying, yeah, you could do that. And we talked about, you know, what it might take to to get there. So that kind of sparked an interest. And then really since since that sort of time onwards, I I kind of angled what I was doing at school and outside of school towards career in, in aviation. I've done sort of various other things along the way. It hasn't been like a straight beeline from primary school to a New Zealand career. There's been lots of segues in and out of other industries. But all through my my schooling and like my other things that I've done, I've kind of had flying as this sort of North Star that I've been trying to to work towards. So I started out with doing a couple of trial flights and got involved in the ATC or the Air Training Corps. And I did a flight when I was, my first flight when I was 13 at high school. And then my my dad actually organized for me to go on a ride with, with a, a local uh, pilot in Wellington who had a charter company. And he's quite well known in the industry. And a lot of people have been yeah, beneficiaries of, of him helping them, help, helping them out in some way. So I went on a ride with, with Peter Vincent and one of his airplanes and we did the paper run. So we took the papers from Wellington Airport to Blenheim to Nelson. And then we were back home at Wellington by sort of half past seven in the morning. And I remember taking off with this load of papers in the back with Peter and just sort of watching the sun come up and thinking, yeah, this is, this is definitely where I want to go with, um, with my, with my life and what I want to do. So as I kind of progressed through school, I, I, I continued with, you know, angling my studies towards flying and then got more and more involved in the air training corps and started working in a bakery and did a paper run and did student job search and all of those sorts of things. And those those little bits of money that you collect aside from, you know, paying other little things. I think I bought a stereo, which was the first thing I bought. But also, you know, that that money was going towards some of my flying training as well. And so money kind of took on a bit of a a new meaning as and it wasn't just a way to have a good time it was also buying the hours because every hour that you get goes in your logbook and back then it was how quick can i get to 10 hours and 10 hours like i do that and that's less than one flight now but back then i was like oh my goodness i need i need 250 dollars because i need to buy an hour of flying or something like that so that 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 was kind of the way i started building up so i ended up getting a private license when when i was 17 at, at high school and I used to used to be able to take some friends flying. So I'd take take friends flying before school and we'd we'd go to school and we'd walk into class and you sort of sit there trying really hard to focus on the teacher talking about whatever they were talking about. I had English or something. And my head was sort of still out there thinking about, oh, I could have done that landing a little bit better at Wellington or I should have fitted in with that traffic a little bit better or something like that. So that was quite a yeah, an interesting way to kind of switch out of a flying headspace into then going to school. So, so that was, yeah, that was that was an interesting time. And then, eventually, did some jobs in film and theatre, and and worked in a gym for a while. And then eventually got a commercial license in two thousand and eight, and got my first job up in the middle of the North Island. So I spent three three and a half years doing scenic flights around the middle of the, the North Island, the volcanoes up there, and. Then was lucky enough to to go on a trip through the east coast of Australia and up into Papua New Guinea, and I flew a, a little technical aeroplane up. A, it's, I say technical aeroplane, it's a technical flying, doing calibration of some of the navigation aids up there. So it was awesome. It was a very high powered and very capable machine, and the captain that I flew with on that was really great at passing on a whole lot of knowledge, and that really kind of paved the way for me to get into air ambulance flying, which I which I got into after that, flew sort of charter work and air ambulance work. And then eventually some some chartered or some scheduled passenger work. We were contracting for Air New Zealand and then eventually the phone call came and I went and did the job interview and uh, moved to Christchurch to work for Air New Zealand in Mount Cook and that was in 2014. And then just recently in the last sort of six to 12 months, I transitioned onto the 777 and I've started my my international flying career, and that's kind of where we end up now. What a journey! Lots of different parts to that. Is is seventeen years old quite young to get a private pilot license? 
Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's 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 certainly the the younger end. You have to be eighteen to get a commercial license, but you can be seventeen to get a private license. And it wasn't sort of a it wasn't a target. I wasn't aiming for let's do it at seventeen because that would be a cool thing to do. It just kind of it just kind of happened, and I, I knew that I that's what I wanted to do. And you know, my parents were really supportive in, in in making sure that that was if that was something that I wanted to do, and it was a career path that I wanted to to go on. That that's what we sort of worked towards. And you know, like working at the bakery and paying all that sort of stuff. And one thing one of my first instructors told me was that when you're working towards something like that, it's really important to be consistent and have a really focused period of of uh, of intense kind of work towards whatever that goal is. So. You know, usually if I was trying to gain hours, I might save up a couple of hundred bucks and then I go once every month or something like that, you know, just to sort of keep your hand in. But when you're trying to sort of attain a certain standard, it's a bit like a race, you know, when you're training for whatever it might be, coast to coast or just a, a 5K run or whatever. In that period, just before it, you really want a nice concentrated period of time where you're, where you're focusing on that. So had a, a nice little focused period before I did the private license and then I got through. So that's how the the journey kind of started. But yeah, seventeen was definitely sort of at the at the younger end of of the of the scale. So I was I was lucky. I was very lucky to be able to do that because that's yeah that was it's a fortunate thing for sure. And to get your commercial, is that where you have to go and do like your study at Massey or? Yeah. So that that kind of that's all sort of changed since I did it when. When I came through, I came through what you might kind of describe as like an aero club kind of way of learning where there's, it's like, it, it, it is as it sounds, if, you're, if people aren't familiar with that, there's a, a club at, a, at an airfield where there's little airplanes and you can become a member of that club and you don't necessarily have to fly, but you can be a member of that club and they have, you know, working bees or, or if you just have a general interest in aviation. And then to contrast that, they have certainly these days, big sort of commercial schools, like as you say, like Massey Aviation or um, there was a really big one in Hamilton before COVID called CTC. And even down in Dunedin, there's a place called Mainland Aviation. So I came through the aero club side of things. I didn't go and do a big school. I guess there were a couple of reasons for that. It was still quite a, a new thing and I didn't really know much about it. And I sort of had a relationship going with the instructor that, I'd been training with at Wellington. He knew me and I knew him. And I thought, well, let's just keep going with that. And sort of just got different experiences by moving around these different aero clubs rather than go to just one of the big schools. So, yeah, I don't know if there's any, often in my experience, I'm not sure if there's any right or wrong way to do that. That was just the way I went. And I think I had a pretty good experience out of it. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. Oh, thanks for giving us a bit of background there. So now flying the triple seven, pretty cool plane. It's probably one of my favourites behind the A three eighty. Yeah. Is it is the triple seven like was that your dream plane to end up flying, or what? What is your favourite plane? Yeah. Well, when I when I was first standing on that hill with my, my with my grandfather, I thought that I wanted to fly military jets. And I did actually have an interview lined up at RAF Cranwell in the UK to go and do that. But then just the way life turns out and different circumstances, and I got this private license and we spent money on getting me a commercial civilian license, I didn't didn't end up pursuing that. And you know, I, I sometimes do wonder what life might have been like if I'd have been a, a military pilot in the UK, because I've got a, a, a British passport through through my mum. Uh but, you know, it's no point wondering because we are where we are and, and you just kind of got to make the, the most of, of, of what you've got. And I guess my, my other goal that I wanted to achieve was, was to fly a long-haul jet. And to put it simply, I just wanted to fly an aeroplane that I could stand up in without having to duck. Because all of the other aeroplanes are actually quite short. So in the ATR, I sort of have to walk along with my head kind of about a little bit because I have my head on the roof. So I can actually do that now. I can stand up in a triple seven and um, I don't have to duck. So that's, that's gold ticks. If nothing else happens in aviation, I don't have to duck anymore, which is um, great for the neck. Yeah. And you're else. quite tall. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm so six, six three. So that's been a bit of an exercise over the years. It's teaching my body to fold in the right places <laughs> so that I can sit in these different chairs. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So what, yeah. flying long haul is quite a unique lifestyle. So a typical month in, at the moment in the present, what, what does that look like for you? Yeah, so it's I'm still sort of getting used to it. I, I started training on this airplane in, in August and I've been out online for three or four months now. So we operate on a on a four weekly roster. So the roster comes out and it's got your flying on it for the for the month or for the for, the, for that four week period. So at the moment on the triple seven fleet, we're mainly doing trips to to North America. We do a couple of trans-Tasman trips um, over to Australia and then a couple of trips up into the Pacific Islands. But the the main trunk for us is San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Houston. So at the moment, I'll probably do three of those trips a month or in a, in a roster and then maybe one other trans-Tasman, like a day duty or something like that, which might be a, a Melbourne return or it might be up to Apia to Samoa and then back in a day. So that's, us- that's what it's about, sort of averaging out about 85 flying hours a month in that rostered period. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when you say maybe, you know, was it four long haul and then trans-Tasman or something, it doesn't sound like that much work, but then you forget how much time those long haul flights take. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. And it's it's interesting. Some people have asked, they said, how do you find it? Because there's sort of, everyone's different when it comes to flying and what their career goals and aspirations kind of are. Some people, that's absolutely what they want to do is go and fly long haul. Some people are totally happy just being career flying instructors and, you know, teaching people how to fly. And there's kind of every everywhere along the spectrum in between, you'll find people happy with what they're doing. And some people have kind of been a little bit sceptical or a little bit nervous about going to try long haul because they're not quite sure or it seems from the outside that you're away all the time. It's really hard on families. It's hard to have a social life. It's hard on the body and all that kind of stuff. So as part of me getting ready to to go and do that, I make sure that I had a pretty frank and honest conversation at home to say, hey, look, you know, this is what life might be like. Are we are we okay to do that? And actually so far the transition has been not what I not what I thought. Like it's 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 a challenge to get used to different roster patterns and commuting to and from Auckland and and all that sort of stuff. But there are actually some really good strategies that you can put in place to make it a lot more palatable. And I'm certainly finding that I'm probably away from home for a longer period, but I'm home more, if that makes sense. So when I go to work, I'm away for a week, but then when I'm home, I'm at home longer. So it's the balances, if that works for for you and, and your lifestyle. It's actually pretty good. So so far it's been it's been a really nice, really nice kind of transition. Still getting used to it, but it's it's yeah, it's better than I thought it was going to be, to be honest. And how long is the training process with the triple seven until you're like, you know, a, a captain? Yeah, well that that's a that's a that's a tricky question to answer because a lot of airlines, most airlines around the world operate a seniority system. So it's it, the, the system is aligned or, or ranks and positions are assigned to crew members in seniority order. So I've come in as a, I've come in as a, on this particular field, I've come as the second officer, but the most senior rank in Air New Zealand is a 777 captain. So to achieve that, uh, it's it's really a waiting game. And at the moment, from the day you walk in the door until the the time that you become a triple seven captain is probably in the order of sort of somewhere I'm guessing fifteen to twenty years, and you can you can certainly do that if you wanted to go and achieve that rank sooner. You could go overseas and fly at a, another carrier where the seniority system is such that you can be promoted quicker, or or if you have experience already doing that sort of thing you could slot into a, a direct entry captain position but that's that's part of the the seniority and the the union based system that we have in New Zealand is that it's it's a, it's a waiting game so you go in and it's it really is a career job so but by the time I'm sitting in the left seat I'll have a few more gray hairs I reckon that's huge when you said 15 to 20 I thought mm. you're going to say months not years <laughs> no no yeah 
and the, the the good thing about that in 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 Air New Zealand is that we don't just have one fleet. We've got several fleets, and you can, as your seniority improves and you become more senior up the up the list, you can chop and change as your circumstances dictate or your interests dictate. Like you don't have to just stay on one fleet through the whole fifteen to twenty years. You might decide that you want to go and fly more domestic, so you'll you could jump over and fly an Airbus for a bit, and then you think, oh, I quite like the long haul. Then you could go and fly the seven eight seven and do the trips to, to JFK or to Chicago or something like that. And you might come back to the 777. Like, there, there's no one way to, to kind of do it. And you could take a command on an Airbus. There's lots of different options. So 15 to 20 years to get to the left-hand seat of the the, the the heaviest weight category jet that we have is 15 to 20 years at the moment. It may be even longer. Oh, that was a guess. But it's still a long time. It's not tomorrow, put it that way. <laughs> And if, if anyone's flying on a 777 to the States sometime soon, might we hear you over the, the speakers at the start of the flight? Yeah, yeah, that's, um, yes, yeah. It, uh, the When the crew gets together, so we all sign on and we do our flight planning activity and all that sort of stuff, part of the that process is assigning different roles. So you have a pilot flying, you have a pilot monitoring, and then everyone else kind of does different jobs. So... Yep, we all rotate around doing different things. So I think I did a, I did a trip to San Francisco a couple of weeks ago where, where I was the where I was flying for that. So I do all the PAs, and actually it turns out that one of the people I used to coach was on board. Oh. and he sent me a message. And I went down the back and sat and had dessert with him, and then went up and went back to work and did all the PAs and stuff. So you're never quite sure who's watching. That's so cool. Really neat. Yeah. yeah. Oh well, listen out for James. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah, surprise. And I'm um, <laughs> flying to the States so far. What's your favorite destination there? Oh, I've only been to Houston once, and that was on Christmas Day. So it was all very quiet. I'm not sure I can fully judge Houston yet. There's lots of great things to go and see and do in Texas. And we spend two nights up there. So I'm going to reserve my judgment on Houston yet because I think there's still more I need to see on that. And I've spent most of my time in San Francisco, but I think LA, down by the beach, is, is awesome. Yeah, I'm going, heading back there in a couple of weeks, so I'm looking looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah, Los Angeles is good fun. And do you have a, a set amount of time, like after you do, say, Auckland to, to LA, do you have a minimum time period you have to rest before flying again? Yeah, so we have very, very strict contractual rules that our rosters are built on. So when you get a roster, it's already been pre it's been pre-assessed basically. And the, the the roster builder will only assign flights and tours of duty to you that meet those criteria. So it's kind of like flying a oh flying, driving a truck where you know drivers can only do a certain number of hours in a day and they have to write that in their logbook. Essentially it's the same kind of thing. But on top of that, because most of our work is in the middle of the night. We have a really robust fatigue reporting framework. So if you are at work and you do experience the effects of, you know, excessive tiredness or something like that, it is encouraged. And in fact, I think it's even mandatory that you need to report that. And all of that reporting data is collated and we can assess trends on certain routes and pairings and and duties that may be more fatiguing than others. And that then goes to help rostering assign flights more effectively so that we kind of avoiding these fatigue circumstances. Mm, interesting. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And with some of the other challenges, I mean, jet lag itself is pretty pretty hard at times to manage. What would you say are other, other things that have cropped up in doing these long-haul flights that have been maybe a surprise, more challenging that you, than you would have thought? Yeah, it's, I'm, I think I'm still learning about the effects of it. Lots of people have part of like doing your sort of your, your due diligence in a way and, and asking around, asking your colleagues, hey, what's it like? What should I do? How can I manage this better? Like everyone's got their own little individual strategies. So I'm, I'm not sure if you ever get used to fully feeling like you're in a bit of a fog when you get back from a trip. Somebody said that to me once. They said, you, you won't get good at being tired, but you'll just get used to it. And it's, you know, you have a professional responsibility to make sure that you aren't doing activities that that 
will make you excessively tired or fatigued before work. That's that's a no go. So, but when you get back from a trip, having you know having a discussion with people at home, friends and family, hey, when I get back from this trip, I'm coming home and I'm going to bed until midday. So even though I'm arriving at home at seven o'clock, I'm, you won't see me until twelve. So I'm going to go and have five hours sleep, and then I'm going to get up. But there's like there's little really sensible practical things like no power tools on the day that you get home, no intense admin discussions about stuff that's happened at home once you get back. So you can't talk about the car going and needing a warrant because that just goes literally one in one ear and out the other. Like it's it's quite hard to. You've you know everyone's sort of been a bit tired, but when you when that's your job and you've come home from work and those sort of things happen, it's really hard. You want to be engaged and you want to listen and you want to kind of be helpful around the house, but it literally just comes in and goes out. <laughs> They're just sorry, I just need to go to bed. So little strategies like that, and everyone sort of has their own little toolbox of things that they do to to try and help them get through. It's like the same rule kind of applies in terms of what you wouldn't do, you know, under the influence of after being medicated or alcohol, you know, don't don't make any major important decisions in your life or do anything that's like you said with a power tool because. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's probably fair enough. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it's just, it's just a bit like we all recognize that working in the middle of the night isn't great. It's not good for the body. And, you know, there's multiple studies about the the effects of sleep deprivation i'm sure you're you know you're really interested in that your line of work as well but we all recognize that when you come home from these trips you've been awake and you're alert all night and then you get home the last thing you want to do is pick up a drill because bad things can happen if you're tired <laughs> and you're trying to do things with drills yeah or skills or anything like or lawnmowers even you know like it's just about sort of being a bit more sensible with it and yeah. the lawn's not going to care whether you mow it today or tomorrow it's still going to get mowing exactly you know? yeah yeah so, so taking that into consideration with the fatigue aspect and things how do you manage that with your own training schedule because i mean you're not going to go and smash a you know hard two-hour run or something just before doing yeah. a long-haul flight so how do you manage that yeah, that's that's so true. And I must admit, I have been, I've been guilty of thinking I could do that, and then the reality hits, and you realise that that is not a not a good idea. So, when I was flying domestically, I was quite lucky in that when you get to a hotel somewhere, you've really you haven't got heaps to do. You're in a, a city that you don't really know. You haven't really got commitments. So that was a great time to go training. But on this new on this new schedule and the new roster pattern, it's, it is a bit more of a balance. So when you get somewhere, so let's take San Francisco, for example. So you arrive there about midday. By the time you're in the hotel, is I don't know, it might be quarter past one. All you're really good for then is going outside and having a very light walk and some fresh air and then having a couple of hours sleep just to sort of shake, shake out a bit of jet lag. But when it comes to sort of specific training sessions, I've really tried to be quite specific and quite sort of focused on on what I'm trying to do. So, you know, training for training for Ironman at the moment, I could go out and do a 45 minute jog, but really, what is that achieving when I'm not when I'm half awake? Like, am I going to get any benefit out of doing a 45 minute jog, or should I actually go to bed and have three and a half, four hours of sleep and a little bit of a fresh air walk and then come back and do a proper, more focused session when I've actually got some wherewithal and able to focus a bit more. So it's about recognizing, I think, that that sleep is probably the most important thing that you can do. A little run or a bike ride here and there, great. But really, it's sort of like falling on deaf ears, really, if you're tired and your body can't do anything with it. So that's really sort of been my focus while I've got used to this new lifestyle is if I'm sleepy and I'm tired, just do that and maybe try and do the sleep well because everything else is sort of a bit average, really. If you just try and put something on a tired body, it just doesn't work. Very true. Yeah. I often talk to people about that too, you know, that are getting up at crazy hours of the morning to go and smash themselves with high intensity exercise. And I just say, you know, you're so much better to actually just get better quality sleep for longer than just get it, you know, being sleep deprived and then putting all this immense stress on your body with like hit and then being yeah. exhausted the rest of the day. You, you do need to weigh up the pros and cons there. 
Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know whether, I'm not sure if it's scientific. There may be some scientific stuff behind it. But one thing I always used to like telling myself or uh, talking with, with people doing uh, events is that you've kind of got a tank and and every time you stay up too late or you exercise really hard, you take away from that tank and that tank needs time to refill. So eventually, you know, like you might get away with an early morning doing a really hard hit session or like three hours of bike riding before work, you're going to go down, you're going to go down, then you're going to go down. And eventually that needs to be repaid somehow. I, even in a way, I used to apply that to caffeine as well. Like if you have a cat, if you have, if you have a coffee, that's borrowing from that tank and it, it will only let you go so far before you hit the bottom and you've got to repay that somehow. And either that comes in the form of, some sort of burnout or an injury or just a feeling of blah, I've got nothing else. So it, yeah, I'm really trying hard to to build that analogy in my mind that I'm borrowing from the tank all the time. How do I repay that and refill that tank as, tank as effectively as possible? No, that's an excellent analogy. Cool. Yeah. 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 Um, it's a constant balance. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I'm not sure if you can ever sort of sit and forget. It really takes a bit of revisiting. Hey, how's the tank at the moment? Oh, training peak says I've got a an hour run. Is that a good idea? How much will that nibble away at the tank today, given that I've got XYZ coming up? Should we revisit? So it's a it's a constant sort of revisiting. It's not a set and forget. Yeah. I want I want to talk a bit more about your Ironman training in a, in a sec, actually, because that's cool. Is that <laughs> is that March? Tapo? Does March, yeah. yes. Yeah, cool. yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Just a few other interesting pilot questions I had for you. Yeah. I, I'm not sure of exact numbers in terms of like the New Zealand population or worldwide. I feel like maybe I've read a few things that 25 to 30% or more of people have a fear of flying. I'll, yeah, I'll just go with approximately mm-hmm. that. So if people are listening, a good chunk are probably nervous flyers. From a pilot's perspective, what is uh, is there any key tips or facts that you can share that might just help ease people's nerves around the safety of flying? Yeah, I, yeah, there's, there's heaps and, you know, everyone's got a a fear of, or everyone that has a fear is probably, you know, slightly different. Some people don't like turbulence. Some people don't like being away from the ground. Some people don't like being in control. Like there's a whole host of reasons why people might feel a little bit kind of apprehensive about flying. One of the things that I, that has surprised even me, and you know, I'm I'm always really thankful for the level of training that we receive. So I started on the triple seven on the 14th of August, and I didn't go anywhere near an airplane until basically December. So there's all of that time is learning about the systems, the 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 way the the operation works, the different air spaces, the the components, the the whole kind of ecosystem. And then we practice all of these different scenarios, pretty much anything you can imagine, we can replicate in a simulator. It's a full motion thing for all money, your senses and your body is telling you that you're you are in an airplane. It's full motion. And we can the first time I did a uh we do this, we do this landing in fog for example so that the system is so good and the simulator and training is so good the first time i'd done this landing in fog scenario was into hong kong now i've never been to hong kong flying an airplane before but here we are in a simulator and we've replicated zero visibility in this new airplane all the way down to, to landing in hong kong and it's just we can replicate all of those things so with that in mind, the training that that pilots receive is is really very very thorough. So, I think that's pretty widely understood, and you know maybe that kind of gives people a little bit of comfort when they sit in the back of of a, of a of, of an airplane like that. And considering that, you know, I was saying to get to the left hand seat of a of a triple seven takes twenty years. So I've been flying for for fifteen. The first officer might have been flying for 25. The captain's been flying for nearly 40. Add all of those, and that's 70, 80 years of experience sitting up the front of an airplane. So there's not a lot that you wouldn't have seen or one of us wouldn't have seen in that time. So the experience level is is, is really quite high when you get up into some of those, those 
those bigger jets. So maybe those two things, the experience level. And my, my wife, Petrina, she's come for a ride before and when I was flying domestically. And we, we flew through some turbulence. And she said to me afterwards, she's like, you, you guys didn't even, you didn't even move. And we're like, well, yeah, that, that happens all the time. We, and we, we know how to, to deal with those things. And that's not to discount that turbulence is unnerving for people. But I guess from the public's point of view, you might say, well, the, the pilots have experienced and seen these conditions in so many different ways that if they're feeling okay about it, you know that if things kind of turn a little bit more sinister later on, that they've got a, a plan and sort of some way to deal with that. So we're sitting up there and we have tools and tips and tricks and techniques to deal with those things, but we're certainly not kind of sitting up there waiting for a bit of bump of turbulence and being like, oh, that feels a bit odd. You know, like we're, 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 we're relaxed and confident in our ability and the, the capability of the machine to deal with the situation that, that unfolds. It's probably a long-winded answer. And, I mean, you wouldn't fly if it was unsafe anyway. Oh, yeah, there's no question. Yeah. yeah. That's basically the underlining of everything we do is is safety, first of all. So, yeah, and the stats are out there. I don't know the, the numbers, but it's far, far, far safer to get in an airplane than it is to get in a car. Mm. And we get in a car without thinking about it. So, yeah. Exactly, yeah. No, that's good advice. And and as a pilot, do you, when you're, say, commuting, or I guess you'd be on an A320 going Auckland to Christchurch most of the time, but in other circumstances, do you get any perks like getting to sit further up the front of the plane or business class? When when you're commuting in your own time, no, no, that you're just you're just a passenger like anybody else. But when you do when you do passenger, for example, to to pick up an airplane somewhere else. There are there are certain levels of 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 passenger class which you're required to travel in. And that's really around fatigue mitigation, because you're going to get to the other end and then you've got to you've got to jump in the airplane and fly it. So yeah, you 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 do travel in a class above economy. I don't I forget exactly what the rules are, but yes, you do get to experience that. Yeah. Which is it's yeah, it's 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 well worth it. You do get to the other end feeling more rested Mm -hmm. so you can jump in the plane and do your job basically yeah that's that's basically what it's all about yeah yeah but yes is the short answer (laughs) that's good you deserve it i think with all that hard work (laughs) yeah 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 Yeah. um and alongside what you've been doing with flying in in more recent years you've done some extra study through university of canterbury so i'd be a little bit more intrigued to hear about that and also we were talking a bit about tall poppy before jumping on the podcast so yeah Mm. tell it tell us more yeah, well, it kind of came about when I've been sort of thinking about this for a while. My my brain loves learning new things and experiencing and experimenting and being curious with with things. So while flying is my career, I've always had sort of a bit of an extracurricular interest in other things. And we were sitting at home during COVID and lockdown and and I was very fortunate that I got to keep my job through, through COVID. But there was a period where... I probably didn't fly for seven or eight weeks just while we were in lockdown and all that sort of stuff. So we were kind of sitting at home and I ended up enrolling in a in an MBA or Masters of Business Administration at UC. And the idea behind that was, well, again, to learn something new, but also to to kind of diversify my skills a little bit or at least try and find out what things I might be interested in doing if I wasn't able to fly. And that's not because I think about not flying. It's more about what if I lose my medical, or I my eyesight goes, or something happens. And it, you know, you, at any one time in life, you're only seconds away from something drastically changing, whatever that might be. So just having something there that kind of might sort of spark my interest in something new. So anyway, I signed up to this um, to this to this program, and it was at that point that I sort of really became aware of this feeling of what am I, what am I doing? Like, who am I to think that I can go to this program and, and offer anything? Like I, I, what have I, what have I got that people might find interesting or valuable? And when you go, we certainly found it in our cohort, when you, when you front it up on the first day, we go to the introduction sessions, people come mentally prepared to these sessions 
with like a list of canned questions. Hi, where are you from? What do you do? What do you hope to get out of it? And sometimes that's really valuable because you've got a toolbox of things that you can start a conversation with if you're not sure how to do that. Great. But what also became apparent was that that was a way, a mechanism for people to kind of find where they fitted on the spectrum in relation to everybody else. And what we all found, where a lot of us found, was that there was this real feeling of, I'm not, I don't really feel like I should be here. Like I, I don't have anything like, I don't, I'm not enough, I'm not experienced enough. I'm not able to contribute. These are really smart, brainy people and I, I'm not. And there's this really interesting kind of psychological play going on between all of these different, you know, really successful people in their own ways coming together to, to, to tackle these, these papers and learn these new things. So there was this real element of, um, of, of imposter syndrome, people feeling like they shouldn't be there. And actually, to the course's credit, that was one of the things that was addressed as part of one of the papers, was, was recognising this feeling of, I'm not really good enough. But then what is good enough? And going through a process of understanding more about who you are as a person, your sort of strengths, what makes you tick, what, what you're interested in, and then owning that and saying, yeah, that is me. I'm, I'm okay with that and I'm comfortable with that and I'm going to take those strengths and really maximise them because that's how I add value to the world and that's how I sort of feel nourished as a person. So while the MBA has been a lot about learning certain topics, economics or finance or sustainability or something like that, one of the really strong themes that's come through has been about the the personal development and personal journey that that each of us in the cohort has gone on to become more authentic and more grounded in ourselves so that we can contribute in our own way. Interesting mm, stuff. A long answer. Yeah. With with the imposter syndrome, I I think it's quite common. Many of us feel like that. You never feel like, you know, you know enough or you're good enough or, you know, that you're not meant to be where you are and feels really awful. Is there any any advice that you'd give in addition to what you've spoken about with how people could think of that, change their mindset around that a little bit? Well, it's interesting because that paper was a was a leadership paper that we did and it ran for the whole year. And it started out with the the two lecturers, two lecturers. They started out with kind of delving into the theory of of leadership and how leadership has kind of evolved over the last sort of couple of hundred years. And then it kind of took a turn towards the end where it was sort of became a lot more introspective. And I must admit, for the first probably three quarters of the year, I just didn't get it. I was like, no, no, I understand. I, I understand what a good leader is. I've seen good leaders. I know how I kind of act in certain leadership situations. But it wasn't until we did this last stage of the of the leadership development plan, we called it, where we did this quite a detailed, detailed sort of survey that we gave a lot of information about ourselves and we got a report back that identified five key strengths. And it wasn't until I kind of did that and went through this process of putting these strengths into action and understanding like literally what they meant for me and how I how I can interact with them and make them stronger that I that the paper clicked. So I'm not sure if I can give a tip or trick to someone, but all I could probably say from my experience is that if you know, if you understand more about yourself and what you are good at or what really gives color and brightness and vitality to your life, just maximize that. So if you love seeing people laugh, that's a really, that's a really, really important skill. And it's not to say that you're a joker, but it's to say that you have the ability to bring brightness and happiness and positivity to a situation and really own that because some of the the studies which we talked about in the lectures kind of exposed us to was that you get far more bang for buck maximizing what you're really good at than focusing on the two or three things that you might not be that good at. So basically maximize what you're really good at and don't spend that time getting bogged down too much in what you're not good at. I like that. So, that is good mm, advice. Hmm. Yeah, maximize your strengths. Yeah, because we often think, oh, I'm not good at this, so I'm just going to try and 
keep working on that and, you know, personal development and my weaknesses, but actually, yeah, change the narrative and work on what you've already, you're already naturally good at and maximize that. Yeah, that's right. And I, I don't, I don't know, I don't know the names of the studies, but I've got all of the, the notes on my computer. There's, there's some of the science and the, the literature shows that if you do that, and if you do maximize your strengths, you can actually improve the level of the other things which you're not so good at just by being better at what you are good at. So it kind of drags everything up. Mm. Whereas if you spend more time on the things that you're not good at, you can drag the things that you are good at down. It's kind of like a sunk cost in a way. You're sort of putting effort into something where you're not really getting the best return. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it was really it, – and that's the sort of thing that has really been great about the MBA is is, is learning that sort of stuff. It's hmm. Yes, it's great to learn about balance sheets and income statements and all of that, but it's the, it's the, the psychology of how – of how people kind of behave and, and interact and learn and sort of work with the world around them. Uh, that's been the biggest kind of learning, I think. And you said you only luckily had to have a couple of weeks off with COVID from flying. When you did the MBA, were you still juggling that with flying or how did that work? Still going. Oh, yeah. Both. So I started in 2021, I think. Yeah. 22? 22, yeah. And I'm still going. I've got a research paper in my final my final consulting project to do. So hopefully this time in about oh, eight or nine months, I should be finished. Oh, good stuff. So yeah, that's a bit I'm on of a the juggle. I'm on the lookout for it. Yeah, it is. It is a juggle. So, um, but that again, that's another part of the the challenge is how do you how do you work, how do you study, how do you be a a good person in your in your in your life and with your friends and with your family. It's just a it's not a set and forget. Just yeah. keep revisiting. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So we've had the pilot hat, we've had the MBA hat. Why don't we talk a little bit more about the sporty hat in Ironman? <laughs> yep. So yeah, you, you already alluded to the fact that you're doing Ironman in a few weeks' time. So tell us a little bit more about what you've done previously and how how things are tracking for a few weeks' time. Yeah, well, I guess yeah, my when I was at high school, my sporting really started out with basketball. I didn't play sports when I was at primary school. I got into basketball when I was at in high school, uh, in, at intermediate rather. And it was really just because I was tall. Probably been about this height since I was about 12. So I immediately kind of got railroaded into the post and I just sort of stayed there through, through most of my basketball career. But I played all through, played through uh, intermediate and high school and got to a, a regional level in high school and then sort of started playing in a in some national teams. And eventually, a few years ago, I kept breaking my hands. I was playing in Christchurch for a club and I kept breaking my hands. And and I thought, oh man, this has been long enough. And I just gave it away and got into something else. So basketball was kind of my my background. I had some some really great coaching experience there. And then I got into running just for something different. I thought, oh, I'll have a crack at running. And Oscar from the front runner, I, his words are ringing in my ear. He says, if you run, then you're a runner. So, you know, at the beginning, I would it was a shuffle at best. But Oscar's saying what Oscar says, if you run, you're a runner. So I got sort of chipping away and entered the, my brother and I entered the uh, Queenstown Marathon. And we had a crack at that in 2015, I think. And I remember crossing the line and I... I yeah, I'll, I'll be I'll be open about. It. I cried. I was like, "What have I just done?" It was it was hectic. My mum was there, and I think just the 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 physical effort. I hadn't done something like that before, and it was really like it was a really eye opening experience. And you know, everybody cheering you on, and to think you could put your body through that and then get to the end of it was there was, was tears was of really, joy. I hope. I don't even know. <laughs> probably not. It was probably joy, relief, pain, the whole lot. It was sort of 20 miles of hope, six miles of truth. I think that's what the capture was, something like that. And all the truth came out at the end. It was, yeah, it was a really great moment. But it kind of, it started me on this this journey to, towards running. And then eventually I bought a bike and got back into to biking, which is such a, a joy to do. I don't know why I put my bike away. You know, when you're a kid, you ride your bike and, it's so fun. You go and play with your neighbors and you go up and down the street on your bike, but then you kind of, it goes away somewhere in your early teens and it doesn't really come out again unless something kind of catalyzes that. But anyway, 
I got back into biking and, and had a really good time biking and thought, well, why not throw swimming at it? So then I went and saw Dan and got some got some swim coaching and thought, well, why not Andrew and I, man? So got involved in, in long-distance triathlon and sort of been in and out of that ever since, really. Awesome. Yeah. That's cool. So how many yeah. Ironmans or, or triathlons have you ticked off? Uh my first Ironman was well, was Challenge Wanaka when they had the old full distance course, uh, the long distance. And then I did, I did Topo and I'm signed up for my third full one, but a handful of half Ironmans, a number of Olympic and sprint distant ones and went to the um, the New Zealand age group team in the Gold Coast and raced sprint and Olympic, Olympic distance over there, which was a wicked experience. Really, really cool. And it takes up far less time to train for that than it does for an Ironman, which is also a plus for the uh, for the responsibilities at home. Yeah, that juggle. So yeah. with that first Queenstown Marathon you did with the tears of joy and everything else, do you think that was one of your proudest moments ticking that off or what would what would challenge that? I think I was thinking about this question and one of the things that, I, that really s- sticks with me is when I was playing basketball, we were in the under-16s, and we had a coach, you know, we, we've all had various coaches through the years that you remember and some that you don't. But this particular coach, we had a we had a really great team. We had a, a number of guys that played for Mana College and Bishop Viard and a couple of those schools in Wellington that were really strong basketball schools. And I we ended up in this team together. It was a, it was a Wellington team. And I, being the tall guy... I was, you know, 15 and I was still stuck in the post. So I was kind of always around the basket rebounding and, and doing all that sort of stuff. But this coach, Jake, his name was Jake Cameron, he, we used to front up to training and he would give us an A4 piece of paper laid out to the minute how our 90 minutes of training or two hours of training was going to go. This is how we're going to warm up. This is what our drills were going to be. This is what our focus is and these are the outcomes. And he started giving me latitude to get a little bit further away from the basket, which for a big man that was always stuck around the basket was made me feel like I, I had some sort of other purpose on the team. And I remember we were playing in we were playing in a final and for the I think it was for the national championship. And Jake put me on and he said, just do do what you need to do, you know, find the thing. And I remember I, I shot three pointers, which for a big guy is not 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 usually what you do. And I ended up shooting them, and they just kept on going in. And he he said I ended up with this nickname Bomber, and it was it's such a silly thing, but the coach calling me Bomber, and then the other players saying, "Oh, put Bomber on," I was it was it made me feel like I was part of something, and. We won the game, but it wasn't about the winning of the game. It was about me feeling like I was, again, that imposter thing. Big guys don't shoot threes. Get in the post, stay where you're supposed to be. But I was like, I feel like I'm part of this team. I can play with these guys. And the fact that we won the game and these other really good players who I looked up to were calling me bomber because I was shooting these threes. I don't know how they were going in. But I was really lucky. So that, for some reason, a 15-year-old James playing basketball, that really that really stuck with me. And I think it was a, probably because of the way Jake was able to coach us. And that, that really, really stuck with me about kind of empowering your players to, to do what they need to do. And the other, the other thing that comes to mind is probably just finishing Challenge Wanaka, which is another story, but a, a really, really hectic week professionally at work and that was a, a very long list of things that had to go right for me to finish that that race and eventually finishing it and getting across the line thinking, oh, I can't believe that I've quite finished that after everything that's happened. But that's a story for another time. Yeah. Yeah. So those are probably the two. Those are probably the two things. I love that basketball story. That's really nice. And it just goes to show the power of having the right coach to challenge you in a different way that can just like unlock your potential. Do you, do you think yeah. any experience from Coach Jake, like, because you had a short stint of coaching some athletes yourself, like, how did you try and tie in some of maybe your experience with Jake in your younger years to coaching your own athletes? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Jake, yeah, Jake is certainly one of the coaches that I look up to as, as someone that's provided some real direction. 
and I think what he what he did there was was as I say empowering empowering the athlete to to use the skills that that they have or either just to explore the skills you know you might not you might not have mastered them but you're certainly never going to master them if you don't know that you have them in the first place so that was that was a really uh, a key thing and the other the other real thing that I think is important with coaching that I've always tried to 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 share with my athletes is that you never really know what's going on like you're only ever a guest in someone's life when they talk to you you're a guest there and they they you're privileged when they tell you things about their life when they share things so it's coaching first and foremost for me is about people and building a genuine and, and honest relationship with somebody so that when times are tricky or tough or when a difficult conversation needs to be had that you can have that and it's coming from a place of understanding yeah. on both parts so the coach understands the athlete and the and the athlete also understands the coach on a greater level than just a transaction mm-hmm. hey i've done a run my heart rate was this or i ran this fast but what about all the other stuff behind it so you know building that relationship i think is 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 really important mm-hmm. it's about as much about what is said about as what isn't said because some of the things that aren't said are key little pieces of gold that you know as a coach you know to push a button or know to back away from so yeah some some it's about it's about people mm-hmm. first and foremost i think and yeah that's some of the coaches that i've worked with and certainly jake was really really good at doing that and are you coached at the moment or do you just make your own plan and training peaks yeah, I do. So I'm I'm just coaching myself, mm-hmm. and that's 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 going okay. It certainly highlights the benefit of having an external person looking over your shoulder. I'm sure you like you you know, and everyone else that has a coach knows that the coach is responsible. Well, is 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 responsible for facilitating the training and you know for prescribing at certain times. Sometimes it's directive. Sometimes it's hands off. Mm. And I'm certainly noticing that having only me looking at my training program does make me think about it from an external point of view. If somebody else coming in, what would they look at this and think, is this effective? Is this athlete getting the most out of this hour or an hour and a half or that swim? Like, So it's working okay at the moment. And I think it would be a real tricky ask if I brought somebody in to look at my training program. I've got this roster and saying, by the way, I'm learning this new job, a new way of life. And I've signed up for an Ironman here. Make me go and do it and <laughs> 10 hours or something you know yeah. that'll be a pretty big ask yeah yeah you have to do what works for you at different stages of your life but I think the, yeah there are pros and cons to being coached or not coached and you know I I myself could you know go off and make my own training plan no worries but I I purposely don't because I prefer having that external you know someone looking in and checking in and yeah just making sure everything's going okay and you're always learning something off them as well so yeah yeah, that's that's right, and that, yeah, that's right. Learning something off them, and it's it could be something as simple as tweaking an interval or changing a day. Like the session might be the same, but how about if you change it to that day? Yeah. That means you've got all of this other recovery time, or you take your stress out of your life in these ways. And just having that external person look over it makes it what it seems simple, but sometimes simple is beautiful and yeah. you just need someone to do that for you yeah, so, yeah. something less to do on my to-do list and they can do that yeah totally. and every time you yeah, go in yeah. and they've built you next week you're like oh what's in this week <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah what's my life look like like a little parcel yeah yeah <laughs> yeah. Totally. Um, yeah 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 no that's yeah. cool so yeah. any big goals for iron man is it just to finish do you have a time goal yeah <clears throat> well i did I've got this, and I don't want to start out by sounding like I'm making an excuse, but I've I've got this little hamstring tendon problem, which I've had off and on. I had it a few years ago, and now it resurfaced in August when I started on the 777. And it's just, it's there all the time. And if I put too much power or effort through it, it gets really grumpy. And we haven't been able to find a, a proper fix or remedy to it previously i'd had um i I had some 
some intervention with with glucose with glucose shots, and I haven't gone down that road this time. So I'm working with a physio, and we've we've kind of come up with ways that I can manage it and get through day to day without being sort of too uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So I do have a time goal. I'm going to keep. I'm going to sit on that one. I think what I want to do now is I've got little sub goals for each discipline, and I just want to execute those. So I want. I know how I want to feel when I get out of my swim, and it's it's more about kind of the objective objectives of how I'm going to feel rather than sort of metrics. Long. Like I want to get out feeling like I've been able to sight properly when I swim. I want to get off the bike feeling like my hamstring is intact so that I can go running, and I want to run so that I know that I can get to the finish line as opposed to I want to ride 240 watts for five and a half hours. I could do that, but but I also want to have the flexibility to say, if the hamstring doesn't like 240 watts for five hours, I need to back that off because then the run's out the window. So it's a bit more of a kind of a of a subjective, how does the body feel, manipulate the plan on the day sort of thing. So the goal is to finish, and I just want to do it faster than I've done it previously. <laughs> yeah, the sub goals are probably more important too, because if the sub goals are achieved, you'll likely achieve the overall goal. So, yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And I just want it to be, I just want it to be simple. One of the things that I really like working in various different fields that I've worked in and flying or, or not is that if you can't explain something in one sentence, you don't understand it well enough. And I constantly try and tell myself that when I write a training program, what am I trying to achieve out of this? And when I'm trying to do this Ironman, what am I trying to get out of it? Am I have I got a long-winded answer, or is it something short and simple that I can explain in one sentence? And if the answer to that is yes, then I've probably got the priorities aligned. That's what I'm trying to do. Mm. Yeah, mm. good stuff. Cool. I'll come to the quick fire to finish soon, but of course, this is actually, believe it or not, a nutrition podcast. But I just love the <laughs> fact that I could talk with anyone on this about anything, and it's just it's fascinating learning about what the people do. So I'll tie in a little bit of a nutrition <laughs> bit here. With, no. with flying long haul, I mean, like you said at the start, it's really a minority of the time you're on a plane each month in the scheme of things. But what would you say some of the pros and cons are with relying on plain food and then, you know, being in America around different food options? Does that produce some challenges? Yeah, it does. And it probably comes back to some of those individual strategies as well. But things that I'm noticing and sort of common themes that some of my colleagues have talked about is the importance of hydration, particularly in the 777. We have in the flight deck, we have a flight deck humidifier. So that tries to humidify the air to make it less dry. But if you've been on those long haul flights, you know how dry it can get. So I'll probably go through six to seven bottles of water on a 12-hour flight. And lots and lots of water so just water 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 and you know some guys have got these interesting concoctions of things that they drink cranberry juice and all sorts of bits and pieces but just keep the water coming in because dehydration just makes everything feel worse and because you're working through the night you'd know the science of this far more than than i do but you know at certain times in the night you're more susceptible to reach for the sugary treats so when it comes to to meal timings, uh, and this goes for working, but also when you get to the other end, is try to stay on New Zealand time as much as possible. The The west coast of the States at the moment isn't too bad. It's just sort of around between sort of three and four or five hours of difference in time. So you can kind of manage that. But we rotate through rest up in the fly deck. So you have dinner. And then you're kind of expected to go and lie down and have rest for two hours. So what can you eat that's going to uh, make you feel like you've had something to eat, but then also allow you to at least get some sort of rest rather than trying to digest like a, I don't know, some big hearty piece of meat or something like that. What 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 else could you do to kind of help you rest, but also give you something that makes you feel like you've eaten? So those are probably the, the three things is water, 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 heaps of hydration. Two is stay on New Zealand time. And three, when there are options available, what are you trying to get out of that? What's happening immediately after you eat that meal? 
And if I am really going to eat that ice cream, is that going to help me go to sleep straight afterwards? Or is that sugar going to make me awake at three o'clock in the morning? Mm. That's a real, yeah, that's an occupational hazard, mm. the uh, ice cream at 3 a.m. in the morning. That's <laughs> yeah, tricky. Yeah. And in terms yeah. of other people flying a long haul with that hydration point there, would you say like that's something you'd really hammer into people and just feeling well for long haul flights is hydration and probably minimizing the risk of like respiratory illness as well? Yeah, that's I did some reading on that recently. That's interesting you say that. Yeah, about this the saliva. Is it saliva acting as a as a bit of a barrier for some of the bugs? And if you dry out through dehydration, well then you're kind of you're you're hindering that line of defense. Yeah, absolutely. I'd say hydration, and I know it's something that we're all of uh, we're all at times probably guilty of not drinking enough enough water. But it just becomes exacerbated when you're when you're at altitude, and the more you can get in, like I've, I'll still go through six or seven bottles, and you can still get to the end of the flight feeling like you're a bit dried out. Mm. So just keep it coming, keep it coming in. And you know they might offer, oh, do you want to do you want a lemonade or something like that. Oh, you kind of do because you want the sugar, but you really know that at the end of the day, just getting the water in will, is probably the best thing to to kind of keep you feeling better with everything, really, with your fatigue, whether, whether you're trying to stay awake, whether you're trying to digest food because you've eaten it, all of those things, just yeah, keep the water coming in. It, it, it helps. Yeah. Great advice. <laughs> now, <You're> welcome. To, <laughs> to surprise you at the end, uh, I've got the quick yep. fire. And of course, I know quickfire is always hard because you always question yourself after. But just first thing that comes to mind. So number one okay. is what book or podcast maybe that you've loved recently? I'm reading a book called Exactly, which is about the history of precision engineering and a whole lot of stuff that came out of the Industrial Revolution, including words. So some like cool words that uh, are in our everyday language now came out of people building stuff in the industrial revolution so exactly a favorite christchurch restaurant or cafe oh king of snake favorite yeah. work destination although you can't judge houston yet los angeles what's a bucket list race you want to tick off oh i want to say the great naseby water race mm-hmm. yes that's yeah, yeah. go bury yourself in 100 miles. That would be something. Yeah. And lastly, one of your proudest moments. Now, we, we already talked about this with your sporting, but maybe this can be just in general, like life or anything else, you're another super proud moment for you. One is probably getting married. And the second is probably a recent one. When I came back from my first trip to Los Angeles, my mum and dad had conspired to meet me at international arrivals. And I came out of the door just in a fog, haze of tiredness, and they're both standing there. And I was like, oh, that's Aww, nice. So, that's so lovely. That's probably one of the most recent ones. Yeah, I'm was, sure. Um, is getting, yeah, celebrate that. I'm sure it was one of their proudest moments as well. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of photos and everyone's looking. And it was all, I was, uh, yeah, I felt like a, 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 school, a school kid trying to sort of hide out and, you know, oh, mum, this isn't cool. That's <laughs> Yeah, very good. Well, thank you so much for your time, James. It's been a real pleasure to catch up with you and hear all about what you do and yeah, the different hats you wear. So thank you so much. No, thanks for having me. I I, I hope people find uh, a little bit of uh, what I was able to talk about interesting um, in some way. And as I said, like everyone has a everyone has a story, and I'm sure you could talk to to anybody and and hear some amazing things that that people do just in, in everyday life. So yeah, thanks for coming on. Good to catch up with you.